Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. If anybody is thinking about approaching me and ever want to catch me on the streets, you know, I, I really tell y'all take great proportion because my battle rap brain is still definitely good. So a play of words. So let's take the alphabets. A, I know B's and C's, fellas, R.I.P. the Tookie. He got taken by the Terminator. That's the ex-governor of California, Schwarzenegger. He could get these nuts for executing crit leaders. Now you on E or out your F in mind, G, it ain't hard to see. It's all a conspiracy. They caught my cousin in the H. Hit him with a Rico. A, he hit the freeway, like freeway. Translation, just another pawn for the CIA. Because where I'm from, you either dunking like Dr. J or get caught up in the drama with a K and get slayed. My L, Chapo boys, they will bring the drama to him. Now, what that means, they'll cover him and him. And, oh, mama screaming, not my boy. His mom, deep, but he ain't Pete. The havoc cost them the more. Now, wait for my cue before you leave the booth or you are going to see this S on your key make you woozy woo from all that blue. Now, y'all ain't catch that. I told Superman before he take flight, Wait for my cue because his weakness is Crips tonight. And you know all that blue is Crips tonight. And y'all wondering why Clef is bouncing like a zombie that's tells of the Crips tonight. Now, I'm at the W. They setting up my suite. You working on punchlines, making it hard for me to compete. I ran for president. They considered my setups a threat. That's why they was dying for me to do a speech in Harlem so they could set me up like, Malcolm X, the troopers stop me. I say, don't ask why in the stash box I keep a Glock. You motherfuckers is killing niggas, so I keep an axe like ZZ Tops. <laughs> Wyclef Jean is a genius, a producer, a rapper. He's been a friend of mine for years. Oh, this is a good conversation. It's the man, the myth, the legend, the hip-hop legend. Wyclef Jean on Toray Show. What do you love about uh, music and making it? I, I think, you know... Um... I'm I'm having like conversations because 
You know, I look up to like people like Quincy Jones, Jan Zimmer, Gershwin, right? So these are a few names. Anyone who's listening, like remember the three names I told y'all because it's so important. The reason why it's important is because I got into music because I wanted to be a composer. And I think that this is the part that people don't get, right? Um, Because um, as someone who grows up, you know, in the hood, in the projects, right? When you coming up inside of our culture, what they automatically tell you is like, yo, you know, if you, if you, you want to be popping, you got to be on the radio. Like Funkmaster Flex got to be playing you. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, you got to be on the billboards. Like then you pop and you become a super big superstar. But what they don't tell the community, there's a whole nother side to it, which is actually more important than that. And the idea of like, yo, if you become a composer, you actually can create the stars. And once you create the stars, you literally will never not have a job, you know, if you actually could create someone. So I always say I got in the game because of, it was like, I'd be like, yo, who's doing Superman? Like, what's this music sounding like? You know, like, I love Mike, I love MJ. Damn, but what's this music in the background? You know, I remember first time I heard Summertime. And I, I, that happened to me coming from Haiti at 10 years old, right? And I got to Brooklyn, Marlboro Projects in Coney Island um, at 10. And I'll never forget, um, I couldn't speak English. And I used, you know, I got cousins, one of my cousins, like, you know, we got stories of Brooklyn is crazy. Cause you know, like cousins get stabbed, I got stabbed, fighting. You know, you young, it's like literally you're a young immigrant. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, zoned up at a very young age. And you're trying to find your way. And, and I don't think people understand that. So when we say the idea of like music helped us find our way, that means that it helped me from not getting deported. It helped me from not throwing on a mask and coming for you. You know, it helped me from not sitting in a jail cell with a lot of my cousins that are doing double life. So um, I saw two guys one day, you know, like, going at each other. And there was your dudes was like, yo, your mama, F your mama, I schooled your mama. Other dude like, yeah, well, I schooled, you know, and I said, and I told my man, I said, yo, they going at each other hard, but why are they not fighting? I'm confused. And my man said, yo, this is called battle rap. And I said, what that mean? He said, they are fighting. But he said, you know how we be breakdancing? And then another crew come from another block, they doing the same thing, but they doing it with words. So I was like, yo, I'm going to be the best battle rapper in the world. Because in my brain, I was like, yo, if I become a great battle rapper, I could avoid having a slap box, you know, like, you know, trying to protect yourself. And you're the oldest, you dig? Like, so if you go for anyone in my family, I'm the oldest, right? So you know how I go, right? I'm going to go get my big brother. You show up like you weigh like a buck 20. You got to be ready to go. So... Um, a high school teacher saw me playing piano on there, right? And I was like on the piano and I, I was like, you can see the piano behind me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like on piano and I'm like. Right, and I'm playing these chords and she goes, where did you learn that? And I got on my bubble goose, scullied up and I'm like, 
you know, I play in my dad's church. Like I just, I could hear the music and I just play it. She's like, but who taught you that? And I said, nobody taught me that. And she was like, close your eyes. And I closed my eyes and she was like, what do you see? And keep in mind, I've never studied music theory at 15 years old yet. I don't even know what that is. So I told her in my left, I told her like, okay, my left hand, I could see like one five. And in my right hand, I could see like one, three, five. And she was like, tomorrow you're starting jazz and classical music. I was like, no, thank you. I'm going to be a battle rapper. (laughs) She was like, no. So she strung me up. And so the minute she put me like, in that, in that music class, and this is like in the hood, right? Literally, I was like, then the epiphany hit me. And I was like, yo, I'm going to be a badass composer, you know? <laughs> yeah. So take, I want to go through the pieces of being a great music creator. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me the philosophy, because you're a great lyric writer. Tell me the philosophy behind uh, writing lyrics. So anyone who write lyrics are inspired, right? And usually, like when you listen to an album like Nas, Illmatic, like one of my favorite albums, and you see like line from line, like he's painting the picture. And then if you pay close attention, he starts to decode where he gets all this information from. And then you start to notice the books that he read. And you start to notice the OGs that were on the block that'd be like, yo, man, Sun Tzu, The Art of War. You go, what's that? You got to read that book. So I think um, the, the, the idea of words are inspired by conversations. They're inspired by culture. They're fueled by culture. And they inspired by living inside of other people. And what that means is you, as the author, at times it could be your story, but then you have this thing where you can channel what someone else is saying. So it's almost like, so it, So as, as young little Haitians, they got a crazy culture that says, you know, don't, be, don't sit, under the mouth of old people when they speak it, you know, like mind your place. Like you're not supposed to be within this conversation. But I was always that kid that would be always listening to these different stories. And then even though that would not be my story, I would go into the imagination of how that person felt. And I'd be like, Hmm. what if I could tell his story? So I think these are like the combinations. I say you have to be able to be, within a space of chameleon, right? So whether we talk about great directors, whether we talk about great authors or great rappers or great singers, you know, they're like chameleons within spaces of writing. They could go in and out of different stories, not just their own. I mean, part of what you do, what songwriters do, is compressing the information, (laughs) right? Because I have to be, as as a writer, the kind of writer I am, I have to be expansive and explain the idea in a big way with lots of idea, lots of words. But you have to be able to be super economical and tell a story with a couple of words, convey a feeling with a couple of words. Like, how do you, how do you just like 
you know, compress the thoughts and the stories and the emotions down to like, you know, my love is your love. Ah, I understand what he's saying, you know, like, just like. Okay, so the best way I can explain it to you, and I'm going to explain it to you in probably a couple of words, and it's all going to make sense. To be or not to be. Shakespeare. So I don't think like there's no difference with us in Shakespeare. At the end of the day, Shakespeare was a great writer. And, you know, you have to be able to go Jesus wept. And that's the message. So what happens is um, some people call it wordsmith, right? Um, there is a part of it which is a gift, right? Because, um, and the gift comes from playing with words at a very young age. So um, being that English was not my first language, Creole, French, then English. So I attacked the English uh, literature similar to the way like a Biggie Smalls or a Tupac, right? And what that means is, so Biggie's mom is Jamaican. So literally, if you pay attention to some of his phonetics, you'd be like, hold up. Like he's speaking a Queen's English. Like, you know, at times, um, Slick Rick also, like, You'd be like, hold up, the, the level, you know, and then Tupac, another great intellect, would literally take the words and flip them in a Shakespearean form and, and, and spit it back out. So I think that's also um, uh, just literally when, when somebody's like playing ball, you know, they're on the block trapping, you like trying to figure out how many double entendres you can come up with, triple entendres how many one word can mean five things, you know what I'm saying? It just becomes like a, it goes from like a hobby to like, oh shit, like I could actually do this, you know what I mean? Is there, okay, and I mean like choruses are super special. Obviously that's the heart of the song, right? Like, yes. so how do you get a great chorus? Well, the chorus for me comes from being I always say that I'm cheating because I'm from the church. And not only I'm from the church, me and my brothers and my sisters was the band in the church. And every Sunday I got to make up a song. So the chorus, we call it the soul. If uh, today they call it the top line. And it's all about the top line. Okay, so the key to the top line is you got to think like when you're going into the top line, you sing it. And the key is, can you make someone that's not a singer think that they can sing, right? That's when you know you got a great top line, right? Because the, the chorus that the world sings to, none of them can really sing. But man, when they sing in that chorus, can they sing? So usually for me, it's like, okay, you know, is this a top line that is shower microphone worthy? You know, and I'm, and I'm so serious with you. A lot of people have different ways that they write. I have like a shower in the house and it's, it's, you know, like you have, a, it's so funny, right? So I probably have like 10 bathrooms in my house, right? I use one little tiny ass shower, bro. Like, every, you know, it's that same little tiny shower with the wood, right? And the water comes down and, and there's a little sun that beams because like, I'd be like, I wrote so many tunes in there. And it's like, I, there's one of like, I guess like Wyclef, <laughs> like music theories, like, yo, you know, is it shower? 
<clears throat> bound worthy is the hook shower bound. Because if it's worthy, a lot of us sing in the shower. It's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. I think for one thing that I see that some people do that a lot of people don't do is to start the song with the chorus. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times you build up to the chorus and then hit you. But like some people, not that many, but some people start the song with the chorus. Is that a thought about how to approach it, how to get you to really be hooked into the song faster? Um, Well, it depends who you're writing for, right? So um, to your point, you made uh, the best way I could always explain it just to some. So, okay, we'll take a song. The song you were singing, Whitney Houston, My Love's Your Love, right? So let me see. You can see the piano? Yeah, yeah. I I gave you like the, I made sure I went to the piano room for you because I know you, you're like a music college. So talk about it. So Whitney Houston, right? So you are, so you sing it. My love is your love and your love is my love. You won't take any time to break Right? So you're like, man, this hook is really powerful. But the actual hook to the song that I felt would grab people was not even that. Like, okay. it was the part when I went like, Clap your hands, Joe, it's all right. Clap your hands, Joe, it's all right. So to, to each writer his own. So Whitney Houston. Is that a hook? Is that you call that, is that a hook in your yeah, mind? Yeah, well, yeah, to me, that's a pre-hook. So sometimes the pre-hook is supposed to bait you into wanting you to get into the hook. And sometimes if the pre-hook for me usually comes before the main hook, um, you'll always hear like in my music, like you, you'll find a pattern. There's always like the pre-hook and then the hook comes in because somehow um, the pre-hook for me is what I call a call and response. So in the church, we call that a call and response. It's like, you know, can I get an amen? Amen, can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Okay, now let's sing. You know what I mean? Um, to some, um, they, they like spend days just trying to, I have like friends of mine. Um, so like when me and Avicii was working together um, and we was writing uh, the anthem for the World Cup that was in Brazil, which we ended up writing. And, um, right, so it's like you're approaching a song with a billion people viewing it. So it's like, right, so the, and it's a football field, like a football field in every part of the world. So you go, and then you already know how the football chants are and how big they are. So automatically, once again, like something like that, we literally spent like five or six days, like, What's the hook? Like, we can't even start a verse or a pre because this is stadium, like, football music. So the writer has to be able to adjust to the composition of who he or she is writing the song for. This is a very crucial part to the music here. Talk to me about writing melodies. Uh, melodies are important. And usually I would say, like when I listen to like John Legend, for example, and <clears throat> it's like, at times I hear Donnie Hathaway, 
right? Like at times that like you can hear he does something. And you can listen to early Ray Charles before Ahmed said to find your voice. You know what I'm saying? And you'll hear like different soul singers. And I think melodies come from times of growing up and listening to so much different music, right? So at the end of the day, you, every singer that you hear, you have a comparison for them. I don't care who it is. Like every individual has a comparison. Like some people hear Lauren Hill and they'd be like, man, this is like some Nina Simone vibes, but different. Yeah. You know, like this is, they hear Clef, they go, yo, this is like some Bob Marley vibe, but different. So where, what is it, right? You could hear Hendrix and you'd be like, yo, this was so-and-so. Um, melodies come from just years of listening to so much music that you love. And there's always something that says there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, right. The, great, the greatest art is to look at the art and to be able to create from that art. Then you have Basquiat, right? So at the end of the day, um, being that great songwriters will always tell you like, man, I grew up listening to so-and-so. I grew up listening to so-and-so. So then when you really, if you was to start to break down their style and their melodies, um, you would definitely come across a lot of what they listened to in the past. And I think a great example of that is the score by the Fugees. Mm-hmm. Like you hear a lot of these melodies coming in and out. Because keep in mind, when we were coming out, we were rhyming and singing. So what all of the kids are doing today, that's what we was doing in the 90s. And, you know, in a time when everyone's like, yo, you got to keep it real. You know, like, yo, the lyrics got to be. And you, you, so you have two parts of it. You have the, the monotone style of rhyming, where it's basically like you're talking poetry, right? And then you had the melodies. So all of these groups that were coming with melodies, you can always identify it with something that came before us. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Okay, you're a, a great rapper. Talk about what it is to be a great rapper. Like, how do you get on the mic and like really make us feel it? Well, I think there's two parts to rhyme. And I want to be clear with, with people. So they was trying to get the Fugees one time on Stretch and Barbito show, right? <laughs> and and early, you mean like like early Stretch and Barbito? Yeah, because you know they're trying to get you on that show because if you can get on that show, you're gonna get a college buzz at the time, right? So you know the reps are working. And I even saw something with Stretch and Barbito, and it was like, oh, in the beginning, they didn't know. They was like, eh, we don't know. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know, like, Fuji, what are you talking about, right? What was interesting about that was with rhyming, it was a little tricky, right? Because the reason why it was tricky was as a composer, I knew that rhyming was an element that I had to incorporate. But when people hear the score, they go, yo, Clef is rhyming. They hear the carnival, they like, Clef is rhyming. They hear me on Big Pun, they go, yo, I didn't know he could spit like that. Did cannabis write his verse, right? Not knowing, like, that was part of my hobby, right? So I think that with Stretch and Barbito, not until we got on the show did they really knew that we could really spit because at the end of the day, it was sort of like what we were saying was not on wax yet, if that made sense. So it was yeah. like we still had a street element of trying to figure out what it was and couldn't put it to wax. So I think that what makes a great rapper is growth. And every year they keep getting better with their rhymes. So, for example, so if you like, yo, Clef is 50, what does Clef bars sound like 50, right? So here we go. You ready? I'll just break the alphabets down for you, right? So now, 
Think about when I was 20 and now I'm 50. So it could either go two ways, right? I could either start like on and on and on. You're like, oh, man, I love Clark, but he going to have to get, right? So what keeps me consistent and sharp, right, is because the culture that I'm from, the love first came from battle rap, right? So if anybody is thinking about approaching me and ever want to catch me on the streets, you know, I, I really just tell y'all take great precaution because my battle rap brain is still definitely good. So a play of words. So let's take the alphabets. Ready? A, I know B's and C's, fellas, R.I.P. the Tookie. He got taken by the Terminator. That's the ex-governor of California, Schwarzenegger. He could get these nuts for executing crit leaders. Now, you on E or out your effing mind, G, it ain't hard to see. It's all a conspiracy. They caught my cousin in the H. Hit him with a Rico. A, he hit the freeway like freeway. Translation, just another pawn for the CIA. Because where I'm from, you either dunking like Dr. J or get caught up in the drama with a K and get slayed. My L, Chapo boys, they will bring the drama to him. Now, what that means, they'll cover him in him. And, oh, mama screaming, not my boy. His mom, deep, but he ain't peep. The havoc cost them the more. Now, wait for my cue before you leave the booth or you are going to see this S on your key make you woozy woo from all that blue. Now, y'all ain't catch that. I told Superman before he take flight, Wait for my cue because his weakness is Crips tonight. And you know all that blue is Crips tonight. And y'all wondering why Clef is bouncing like a zombie that's tails of the Crips tonight. Now, I'm at the W. They setting up my suite. You working on punchlines, making it hard for me to compete. I ran for president. They considered my setups a threat. That's why they was dying for me to do a speech in Harlem so they could set me up like, Malcolm X, the trooper stopped me. I say, don't ask why in the stash box I keep a Glock. You motherfuckers is killing niggas, so I keep an axe like ZZ Tops. (laughs) 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 You know, man, you know what I'm saying? Wow. We can't, we can't make that up. It's just what we are. You know what I'm wow. saying? Wow. Yeah. Wait, I wanted to, that was amazing. I want to talk about a couple more pieces of the game in general, but I want your, I want your analysis on, you keep talking about the score, obviously. One of the biggest albums, one of the best albums of its time. It was your second album. Blood and On Reality came out and did very little noise. Yeah. The score came out and was gigantic. Same threesome, right? What was the difference between why one album went eh and the other album exploded like a nuclear bomb, changed music, changed your life, changed, you know, Lauren and Praz's life, changed so much? So on Blunted on Reality, I was the kid in the class. And there was the professor, wasn't me. The professors were, the Fuji's was signed to La Jam, Coolin' Again. And that was the production company. <laughs> so the entire production was being done by the production team. The, the direction of how to go 
was being done by the production team. You're a bunch of kids, you're in the hood, you want to get on. So <clears throat> you have ideas, but you're very careful on when to speak because this cool in the gang. It's Jungle Boogie. They wrote Fresh, Celebrate, <laughs> Every Bar for People Turning Up, Celebrate. So you're so. Now I'm the little professor. I'm, I'm the little student in the class. It's math. So I understand the pre-calc and where it's going. So when we left um, House of Music in the big studio where they was recording us, and then now I will go back to my hood. So I go back to East Orange. So in East Orange, I had a little studio called the Booker Basement. So in the basement, the way that I was making money, Jerry, we always making money. Like I had Lauren singing hooks for like, like some of my friends and a lot of them was like drug dealers, but they would pay money to sing a hook. So if Lauren's listening, she sung a hook called The Twilight Zone, like Elle would be singing crazy hooks. Like we in the hood and the, these hood dudes loved her. Like when, when you know, you, you do a track and you put Elle on the hook, it's going to be crazy. So the beats that I was doing in the hood um, I felt was more like Ron G and that kind of stuff. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like Diamond D vibes, you know, premiere, like I was listening to stuff um, like that. Then I fell in love with like uh, Inya, like in Europe. So I was like, like ASAP, you know, like ASAP Rocky, the way like, you know, he used to just was listening to different stuff at a young age. Just this is how I was. So then when we go back to the house of music, I'll keep my mouth shut, you know what I mean? And then we have to do that. So after the first album came out and then it it it, it tankered the way it did, um, the audience that if you've been to a Fuji show, you already know. What what the reviews kept saying was like, the album don't match their shows. Like there's something that's wrong. Like they live, they bars are sounding crazy. They playing guitars, they killing it with the band, but this, why did that not register in the first record? Like something is missing, you know what I mean? So um, they got us with a producer named Salam Remy. And so you got to keep in mind, so at the time, think of like Barry Gordy, like it's almost like Barry Gordy's looking for a hit for The Temptations, right? He already know The Temptations is The Temptations, he believe in them. But he's like, if I could just get one record to make people pay attention to them, they're out of here. So this is sort of like what Sony was looking for. Salam Remy brought us in, and I went to see Salam first. So if you, you talk to me, I always tell you, like, Clef came and me and him, because I had the conversation oracle to oracle. I felt like Salam was like me, like he was young. And we can have conversations. I didn't feel like I can have those conversations with an older, because I'd be intimidated to have these kind of conversations with, you know, these heavy gurus that has changed the face of music forever. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Salam was like, all right, bring the group, Lauren and Prize, and we're going we gonna to do, do some stuff. So I was really excited. I felt like, Salam understood what we were saying because, you know, he had Hot Stepper. He had the different kind of records. Like for us, we was like, the way that 
the older crowd looked at Kulin the gang. That's how we looked at Salam. It's like, yo, this dude is just, you know, he's on the pulse of what was going on. So i never forget. I actually was in the studio with him three months ago and he sent me, he played a freestyle, the first freestyle that we did because we all went and freestyle. He, I think I freestyled like 15 minutes on the Nappy Heads beat. And he has all of these dats, these original, just young Fuji's just going mayhem. And so <clears throat> Salam threw on the Nappy Heads beat. And he said, all right, who's going to go first? Because he understood, like, this number, the cypher, like, whoever goes in there, they're going to do like Red Man. They're going to do their thing. I'm already an oracle. I know what I'm going to hear, and I'm going to know how to cut it. So I would say, like, seven minutes in, then I'm like, yo, and I'm, I'm going. And I'm like, I'm like, achieve, achieve, y'all. Well, I'm a Libra, y'all. That came in seven minutes in. Then I'm like, yo, Mona Lisa. Can I get a date on Friday? And if you're busy, I will not mind taking Saturday. Hey. Now I'm 15 minutes in. <clears throat> Forgot everything I did. I just did whatever I did. Left. Lauren goes in there. She goes crazy. Like, bar God is crazy. Prize goes in there. He does his thing. But I was watching how Salam cuts it. Like, you know what I'm saying? So... The way like I was watching how he was producing, I said, holy crap, like, this guy is different. He's actually composing. So I was like, okay, I got to watch him closely. So we left. And Salam took the record and in his composition brain, he was like, okay, this is going to be the hook. Let's get 16 out of Clef. Let's get this out of good. Let's get eight out of prize. Come back to Clef. If you notice on Nappy Heads, I have more bars than everybody. I rhyme in the beginning and he threw me at the end. That's because he's literally had 15 minutes of me of just crazy stuff when I say, and I say to myself, what a wonderful world. But what the fuck was so wonderful about picking cotton in the farm, Mr. Slave, man? Um, so once Salam did that, he I never forget, he said, Y'all have a blessing and a curse. He said, before we even get started, the curse is y'all too fucking talented. He said, the blessing is, all we got to do is do some knucklehead shit and it's going to go. So, and then he said, then y'all could bring out the guitars and all the other shit. So we did this record and we left and we went on tour with Das Effects. Bum, skibidi, bum, skibidi, bum, hunt. I got that boat, up, pum, pum, and I can fire. Right? So while we on tour with Das Effects, it's so important that everybody understands, like, you always got to keep your pulse on the culture. And you can't assume, like, what you're doing is it. Like, you always got to be like, what am I doing tomorrow and the next day? The minute you get comfortable, <clears throat> like, something else is going to slip in. So I remember being on tour with Das Effects, you know, and Das Effects Hardcore Underground. I love that group. And... But we was different. Like, so when we came out, dudes would see me in a bubble goose, but I'll show up with a guitar in my hand. <laughs> it's like, you're in the underground. This just doesn't make sense. And in the minute we start, I'm playing mob deep on guitar. They start going crazy. And it starts to be this thing. But we are out of New York City, and we don't have no clue what's going on. Meanwhile, this song, Nappy Heads, has taken over New York City. So by the time we get off a of tour, 
They're like, yo, they got a show at Jones Beach. We show up. Now, keep in mind, we coming from blunted on reality. So we never perform blunted. Like maybe we do two, three songs from there. We always do what we feel in our heart on stage. So we go out there and we like killing it. And, and then I'm like, yo. So I told Leon, yo, just drop the record. And, you know, we don't know each other. And I said, yo, Mona Lisa. And the whole place erupted. Boom, the whole Jones Beach, 20,000. But she, but she, but y'all, well, I'm gonna leave. Yo, that eruption was like one of the greatest highs I've ever felt. Because I was like, what just happened, right? He was like, yo, what just happened? And so Sony was like, okay, we need an album. Like, there's something going on. So then I was like, great. So I went to my sensei, Salam, and every record I did in the basement, I would bring to him. And then I'd be like, yo, you want to add something to this? And he'd be like, what, I'm ready or not? He was like, nah, that sounds done to me. So I'd be like, you want to add, you know? And then he was like, yo, I had this record for Fat Joe, but y'all might want to hear it. And then we heard it, and it was the Fuji La beat that was originally for Fat Joe. <laughs> and we used to be number 10. So coming um, from Nappy Heads, we dropped another single with Salam because we was like, yo, the stuff that we felt had, we still felt like it was different. We felt like Ready or Not was different. We felt Killing Me Softly is a big R&B song. And we was like real, like playing chess. Like we didn't want to move too quick. Like, so people, because we didn't want nothing to go over people's heads again. So what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It was like, okay, Fuji La Knucklehead vibe again. Let's go to Jamaica. Let's turn up the Clash vibe. And then, but the minute we dropped the score, we noticed what started happening. DJs just literally was dictating what the next singles were. You know what I'm saying? Like literally, yeah. 
right? We didn't have YouTube. There was none of that. They literally was like, oh yeah, it's going to be killing me softly and killing me softly and ready or not was literally going up and back and forth like that. So um, that's how it worked out. <laughs> Yo, my favorite song of yours of all time is Gone Till November. <laughs> that song just kills me. Talk about making making that record what you were thinking about what you were trying to do what you you know what how how it came out so right all right so the record gone to november is a record about making runs and the record starts off with the narration i told you exactly what's about to go down um and it's so vivid and clear that there's a drug run happening and it's clear that somebody ain't making back. You lit, it's all vivid. Like you hear there's a drug run about to happen and you know it's gonna go bad. But it's emotional, it's sad, it's heartfelt. It's like, you could have made it harder, like almost like a Nas type, like deep, but it's, 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 there's an emotional beauty to it too. Yeah, cause it's the other side of the beauty, right? It's the other author, so for me, I always believe like melodies take things to another level. And I was like, the message is so harsh and how I could convey it. And it's like Bob Marley, almost like sometimes Bob Marley are saying like these real heavy messages. So the melodies make you feel like, oh, this is just cool. It's cool. But when you start getting into the, the message, you're like, yo, this is real heavy. So for me, we're going to November. I went into that frame of mind like Marley in mind. Like, how am I going to approach this with a double entendre and make everybody feel like they're gone till November? So, like, if somebody's getting up, going to work, they're gone till November. Somebody going on a vacation, they're gone till November. Um, I learned that style because that's how Bob Dylan writes. Like, a lot of things, like, once you start to dig into it, you can get into the depth of it. Also, I was listening to the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, and I was like, okay, I want to put an orchestra on the record. So um, I reached out to like the Philharmonic Orchestra. And I was like, yo, I have a, a record and I would love y'all to play on it. So literally wrote the charts for the, for the Philharmonic Orchestra. And, um, and they rocked out on it. I remember when I, when I met Kanye West at a, um, I think it was a party in New York. And we had a conversation. He literally had a 10-minute conversation with me about Gone to November, about the song, about how the video, the girls came out of the world with the violins, <laughs> you know, the whole, it's almost like when you're doing it, you're just doing it. You're not thinking of it. You feel me? But it was just great to see how other people saw that song. That was cool. So, okay, playing guitar is critical to your whole musical spirit what's it, what what does it mean to be a great guitar player and make people really feel what you're playing well for me i learned that you know curtis mayfield uh carlos santana uh jimmy hendrix steve i um bb king uh i think that the misconception a lot of times with guitar players is so I'm like you, meaning like if you are a guitar player and you're used to shredding in the room 
every rock solo, Dorian, Ionian, Phrygian, that was me at one time. So it was like, I was listening to like Owner of a Lonely Heart and literally playing every part of that. Um, listening to Eddie Van Halen, Hammer-Ons, you know what I'm saying? Like doing all of that. Um, Michael Hedges, the king of hammer-ons. But one time I was seeing Curtis Mayfield play. I think I was 17 and I saw like a, a VHS and I was like, the guitar is really an extension of the voice. That's all it is. So I got to start playing themes. Because now when you play themes now, it's like the guitar becomes party. It's like no longer uh, on the other side of you. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you playing like, um, so like if you, if you were going like, or you go. is you're like but hold up the guitar is singing the song and so listening to like Curtis Santana and all that I was like the Hendrix I was like the guitar gotta sing a song it doesn't matter how fast you play how to speed that has nothing to do with it but you have to make people feel things so you know so just so then the guitar for me is more just an extension of another voice. Of the voice. Okay. How do you make it sing? How do you make it seem to sing? Well, you, you make it sing because <clears throat> this thing is like the most sexiest thing in the world. So you have to think about it like the guitar is your lover. It's the best way to explain it. This is like your baby this is like your sweet heart. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, you see the touch has to be. You can't be on bank, you know what I mean? And then you see your fingers are very, very important. People that are lovers understand that. Touching is the most important thing. So the best guitar players have a touch with the instrument. And a lot of the tone that you can hear, because you'd be like, hold up, when Clef go, it's not like the guitar is singing. How is he doing that? It's in the touch, right? Because a guitar player can grab the guitar and they go. And you're like, Yo, man, what is that? You know what I'm saying? So the touch, it's all in the touch. It's all in the touch. Um, let's talk about singing. How do you communicate as a singer as opposed to as a rapper? Because you I have a special a way singer. of singing. I'm a folk uh, yeah, singer. <laughs> yeah, you have, a, you have a clef way of singing. Yeah, it's just a folk singer. Like, you know what I mean? Like Marley-ish, you know, Dylan-ish, you know, hendrick It's not like the, you know, like the Hathaways. It's just more like, I think I was just more like the, you know, the the guy that's just like, So much looting, so much shooting, 
I can't breathe, I can't breathe. So much looting, so much shooting. You see, and you're like, well, hold up, that sound. That just, Sklef just made up a song. And I think that a lot of that is like, um, I remember like when I met B.B. King at the White House, and he was like, yo, you know you're a blues singer. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're a blues singer. He said, you don't understand. You're a blues singer. He said, you're a folk singer. He said, someone can come and they riff something real nuts and they go in there and then you just show up and you go, uh, and people's like, man, I felt that. He said, because the, the folk singer or the blues singer is just an expression of the soul. So it's not like you're trying to sing something. You're more trying to convey a vibration. I always tell people, you want to see the singer, go see my sister. She the church singer. I was never like, in my church, I would be more like the guy who write the songs, the call and response guy. You know what I mean? Never consider myself the singer. Um, but you get by. Uh, yeah. And you know what? I have chops. FYI, just so you know. I'm going to blow your mind. There is an album I did for Clive, and there's a song called Baby. You've never heard it, correct? This yes. song, when y'all go back and y'all listen to this, I'm singing the entire song in falsetto. Oh, wow. Okay, you see how you said, oh, wow? So I have a seven octave range. So oh, wow. when I was in the church, I more had to write for the sopranos, the altos, the tenors. So it was more like a soulful energy and I knew where to go with it. So at times I step out of the folk mode and... Remember, like, Barb Marley used to sing all of the Temptation music. They used to do everything coming out of Motown with the three-part harmony before, as they was finding their sounds as, as the wellers. You know what I'm saying? So I do have that other side of my voice, too. Do you have perfect pitch? Um, well, it's so funny that you say that. Yeah, I do. But perfect pitch is... Watch this. This is very important for anybody who's listening right now. Anyone who's listening, what constitutes perfect pitch? Okay, this is important, my folks. Automatically, they constitute 440 perfect pitch. 440 is perfect pitch relative to what scale? Western, Eastern. At the end of the day, perfect pitch is relative to what basically the math is based on. If you're in the West, you automatically like, humble, humble, how you been, right? But if you're in the East, you're like, in between the keys, like Thelonious Monk, right? So, that's why a lot of what Monk did, if you notice, if you read the articles, they said that motherfucker was playing off key. Like he's, play, he's not on key. He going, what was he doing? Monk didn't have perfect pitch. Are you out your mind? But he understood it's all relative to the math. Monk is one of my favorites of all yeah, time. Yeah, man. Um, you are a great performer. There's something about Killing it in the studio, it's a whole different animal getting in front of people and making it happen. How, what, what is the key to being a great performer? Well, I've been performing in the church since I've been 10. 
And um, like I said, people from the church be cheap. So automatically attend, they put you in front of the congregation and your daddy looks at you and he says, make them feel something. And you're like, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, make them feel something. Somebody out there got cancer. Heal them. Somebody out there about to lose their job. Somebody about to go to the other side. Can you take them there? So every time I jump on the stage, I can hear my daddy's voice. And all I do is I make the crowd escape. When I come on stage, if it's 40 minutes, if it's an hour, if it's two hours, I just take you away to that place. And it's that safe zone, like literally where you could just be yourself, you know, jump out of your body because the world got you so compressed, you know, uh, that I think that every great entertainer, like when it's time, the best part is to let go. And I always tell people, I've never been to no therapist. And they'd be like, well, who's your therapist? And I say the stage, like a lot of us, you know, like it's the place where you could just release. You can just be, they'd be like, yo, you're so calm. And the minute you jump on stage, you're like, uh, lying. And I'm like, yeah, because I could just be something else. <laughs> In your mind, right now, today, is the Fuji's still alive or is it dead? Well, I think that the Fuji's is, is very much so alive. Um, when you look at Drake, Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, her. Um, the Fuji's are, are very much alive um, because what the Fuji's built from the gate, like what we was getting into, I just remember, it was like, yo, we're going to be a band. We're going to be a hip-hop band. We're going to be a band. And it's, it's like, in, I'm so confident to be like, there's Rolling Stones, there's U2, there's the Beatles, there's the Fuji's. Like, that's a good feeling. And what that means is, at any time, that guitar can come out, <laughs> that voice can come out, and announce a concert at Madison Square Garden. And in 3.1 seconds, it's sold out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying to you? Yes, there's a clear influence over the, you know, the, the decades of music that have followed. There's definitely sons and daughters of the Fugees and Clef and Lauren and all that. Yeah. But I really mean the three of y'all, is there... I don't think it's it, dead. No? No, nah, I don't think so. It could, it, there could be another tour? There could be another album? I believe so. In my heart. Like, in my heart, I don't feel like it's dead. Because we know, st- not you so much, but Praz has said things about Lauren that make it seem like, how could you come back from that? And make you think like, oh, they're broken up. But you're like... But it's more like, I'm a creator. Lauren's a creator. I wasn't no executive producer on it album. I more did it for the art, for the music. So, like, if the Rolling Stone can come together and do what they do, and all of the rock bands can, for sure the Fuji's definitely can. You know what I mean? I mean, she was always one of the most special, creative beings on the planet. Still and is. Like, yeah, of no doubt. Yeah. And 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 just 
I, I can't imagine like working with her and having that talent. Like, you know, it's, it's not Jordan to Pippen. It's Jordan and Jordan. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's an incredible resource. For me, it's amazing because I watched the growth. You know what I'm saying? Like I watch those little poems. I watch like, okay, now go listen to, I don't want you to sound like no girl when you rhyme because they ain't going to pay attention. I need you to go listen to MC Light and Queen Latifah. This is what we're coming with. And she was writing all these poems. Three weeks, that girl came back. <laughs> was Michael Jordan on steroids? <laughs> Oh man, you 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 grew up with nothing in terms of money, and now you know you have this freedom. What is and I ask a lot of people this question: What has money afforded you? Um, yeah. Well, I'm very grateful. One, because I'm 50, and you watched us grow as kids. And 95% of the people that came up with us are broke. As far as professional musicians? Like in the 90s. Like meaning like... 95%? Yeah, and what I mean by that is a million dollars could have turned to 10. 10 could have turned to 20. 20 could have turned to 50. 50 could have turned to 100 if invested right. And anybody that was with me in that Columbia building, when I was coming up in the era of Big L and Curious George, they're not here no more. And when I say that, and then when I say like broke, I mean, they don't have generational wealth. And this is very important what I'm saying right now. This is like the most, if everybody that's listening to this, this is the most important thing. And I'll go back and I'll say, in the era when I was coming up in that building with Nasty Nas, Big L, Curious George, and I could go on. If we go back to that roster, how many of us could truly say that our daughters are okay? And their daughters and their kids is going to be okay. And their kids' kids are going to be okay. The reason why I'm saying that is when you ask me how I feel, I feel like I have a big obligation, my man. This obligation is so big that the first thing I want people to understand is when I try to become president of Haiti, and I realmed into politics. It's like, I felt like even though I had a lot, I lost it all. Right? Because there's something that's greater than money, man. And money is not an extension of happiness. Right? Because my little guy is a Vici, young Tim commits suicide, kills himself. More money than the world. We've watched this. You've seen, we, we have some of the greatest people that we've watched that just has passed. So 
I say the part of it is beyond the money. How do you teach your generations to gather, to, to gather generational wealth? That's what it's about. So when Jay-Z was like, yo, I'm going to make y'all pay for what y'all did to the cold crush. I did. You feel me? And then so now when we look at it and say, okay, because you never want this. One, we got to be real careful with this, right? Because what happens is kids are making money so fast now, right? The same way, way quicker than we were making money. Like literally they could get a Spotify hit. It was making 50 bands in the club every week. Guaranteed, right? everybody's back at their house. No more concerts for the next 18 months. These bands are not coming every week. Did they have the OGs around them? Was the OGs like, okay, all right, I know you want this Lambo right now, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to get this real estate property. And let's just invest this 500000 in this, right? And let's put this in this. So I feel like at the end of the day, and the kids listen to me because they don't feel like I'm telling them a Vietnam story. Like I never come and approach it like, yo, in the year or so and so I had, you know, it's more like I approach it like, okay, player, let's look at it like this. I remember when I bought this, I lost that. But if I ended up buying two buildings at the time, I would have had this. So now I do that. So for me, I feel like we have an obligation. So how do I feel about the money? I feel that the money when Puffy's like, more money, more problems, the money allows you now to be able to change the next generation, right? Because the only way that they're going to listen to you is if you fly. You can't be telling them like, yo, before getting a Lamborghini, get a building. They ain't going to know what you're going to say unless they say, "Unk, how many Lamborghinis you got? How many buildings you have? So I think that it's so important as we move forward, we focus on that. Putting my money where my mouth is at, there was an article that came out in the Forbes where I raised $25 million for my company, Carnival House Records. And a lot of the funds are focused on Africa and the Caribbean because what I'm noticing, and then like you said, I came from nothing. So what the hell is my responsibility? We all have a responsibility, right? So Coming from where I come from, I know my, I have a responsible puff. Everyone has their own responsibility. And you're responsible for a generation. So at the end of the day, this is our weekend. You see how they're moving with the protests. You see how the kids is in the front line. We, these are our kids. We can't let certain things happen to them. And so the next generation coming, it's important that we teach them how to garner generational wealth. Very important. Is that about real estate? It's about owning your own real estate. And what does that mean? That means that when you hear DJ Khaled go. Another one. That means Wyclef owns 65% of that real estate. I do not want the kids to compromise their publishing for just a penny. Like, at the end of the day, sometimes, like, real talk, like, Nipsey Hussle, Jay-Z, like, let these people influence your next energy and understand that the power that you have, President Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, like, understand that your composition, right? Can you imagine 
when I wrote Maria Maria and I'm saying Maria Maria, right? Who gonna tell me 15 years later, Khaled's gonna give me a call? Like, yo, could you call Santana? I'm about to do this record with Rihanna, right? And who who would have told you what happened if I did the record and was like, okay, um, 15 years ago and be like, no, no, I'm not worried about my publishing. Just give me $5 million and y'all keep my thing what's going on. So this is what I encourage the kids. Know your worth. You're worth a lot. And don't compromise that for nothing. Is, is Hips Don't Lie the song that you have made the most money from? Um, Number one selling song of the century? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and you have... What a third of that record, half of that record? No, I have over. I got like seventy percent of that. <laughs> you got seventy percent of that. So is that your number one bag of all the things that you've done? Um, I have a few Bugatti bags. You know what I'm saying? So to your <laughs> point, right? Um, quanti- um, quality over what is it? Quality over quantity? Is that what it is? Yeah. So yeah, I have a few real estate, but. But the most important thing about that song, Hips Don't Lie, that I want kids to know, it was it was done two years prior to Shakira. Are you aware of that? No. <laughs> Yo, I'm about to fuck you up. Yo, this song I did, right, and you're going to bug out. You're going to be like, oh, it's obvious. After you go listen to this, you're going to say, well, yeah, it's obvious Clef owned this shit. So... That song, I was working with one of my godfathers, Clive Davis. And remember, I have big success with him, with Whitney, with Carlos Santana. He like, yo, I'm doing this Havana Night soundtrack. Do you have a song? At the time, I have a group called City High. And if Claudette Ortiz is listening to this, she will tell you how much I kept preaching her that the future is going to be Spanish music. Like, you got to sing... Even though you're doing the R&B, you got to sing in Spanish. If we can do this thing in Spanish, we're going to conquer the world because no one can sing R&B. And, and with, that, with that soulful flair, last time I heard that was like Selena. You got that. You could do it. So she did the original version, bro, of Hips Don't Lie. And it was called Dance Like This. And it was in the movie Havana Nights. Two years cold as ice. Nobody paying attention. (laughs) Like, yo, the joint is cold. Now, this is the good thing about, you know, like I said, this is where your hip-hop head comes in, right? Because with hip-hop, what we're great at? Recycling. Like, so as producer, like, come on, bro. (laughs) Yeah, I remember one time, one DMX record came out. I couldn't remember which one. I think the locks have the same set of points. (laughs) But, so... Two years later, Charlie Walker and him called me. Daniana was like, yo, we looking for a record for Shakira. Okay, all I got to do is tell everyone that's listening, the original version is called Dance Like This. You could go on YouTube or any platform, Wyclef, featuring Claudette Artis. Yo, once y'all hear that, like, you know what I'm saying to you? Like, hit, text me on the Instagram and be like, yo, Clef, you was right. <laughs> so you had the record... And then you refashioned it for Shakira. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that's the is that the number one Bugatti bag? Well, I think that the thing about with publishing is what works great is the collective, right? What do you mean? So, and what that means is how much Wyclef music get licensed per month, right? Because you're you're in a world right now where where music is king. So, can you think? around the world, you see how big this is around the world? There's like 25 Wyclef licenses every month. It's a big world. And then all of the music is worldwide. Um, one day, if you ever come to my, my crib, I will show you a plaque of, and this plaque is a plaque of 10 million, right? But it's not the Fuji's, it's not the score, it's not the carnival. It's not, you're gonna be like, what the fuck? How did I miss this, right? Because now the plaque, it'll take you to New Zealand, Netherlands, Australia. It'll take you all over. So now think about that. People around the entire world, when they do films, when they need bed music behind their radios, you could keep on going and going. So the way that you make money is not necessarily on one per se bag. It's the amount of licenses that you get. So, so if you have a small boutique with the right material, that means people are constantly drawing out that material. So what's the song that you are most often licensed on? Um, a lot of the songs that are, a lot, someone please call 911, that's a big license. Huge. Um, that's like one of the biggest licenses. Can you imagine that? Like more people license 911 than Hips Don't Lie. Wow. Right. So in Hips Don't Lie, though, um, one of the biggest licenses to come out of that would have to be the NFL, right? Super Bowl. One thing that I'm hearing from you is that one big difference between you and most artists who blew up in America is that you have a global mindset and you have a global fan base, whereas most artists are... American that think about an American fan base? 100%. And I'll say it and I'll say it again. Um, my Love, Your Love, it wasn't going to play like on Hot 97. Maria Maria right. wasn't going to play on the Hot 97. Hips Don't Lie wasn't going to play on the, the Hot 97 at the time. But 911 would play on Hot 97, right? So I'm always able to break the mold of whatever they say ain't going to play nowhere and I make it play there. Because at the end of the day, you can't decide what's going to play. The people are going to tell you what to play because they're going to give you the pulse. And all I keep trying to show people is don't put yourself in a box. What happens when you're no longer on that radio station? How are you going to survive? Very important. Um, the last thing that I ask everybody, well, before I get to the last thing, why is my man Robert F. Kennedy on your piano? Oh. <laughs> Why him? Oh, wow, man. You're like, yo, let me tell you, ever since I've known you, you like always got that one question. <laughs> That's why you are you. <laughs> so this is actually was given to me by the Kennedy family. Oh, wow. And I, if you recall, I have a great relationship with the, the Kennedy family and the cousins, the Shrivers. 
uh, when John, when Kennedy's son died, remember, I'm the one that sung at the funeral. Um, I was chosen to sing at the funeral. So, um, so this is like one uh, of the statues that I got uh, through their foundation. And I always keep it on the piano. No, it's beautiful. He was, he was, a, he was a great guy. Yeah. Um, so, okay, your superpower. What is your superpower that you do better than other people that has led to the success that you've had? Okay, I think my superpower is understanding my genetics and my roots. And what that means is understanding my genetics and my roots is my superpower. And, and what that means is the ability to fall and to constantly rise again because you don't consider falling a failure, right? You consider it a stepping stone to the next move that you have to make. So I would say that's really it. And it's a hard thing to understand because usually when people fall, the arena laughs. And in the process of the arena laughing, they buy into the laugh of the arena and they stay on the floor. But the true gladiator constantly rise because they already know they are going to finish this fight. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. One more thing. You, you keep bringing up Marley. Is he, in your mind, the greatest musician of all time? Um, yeah. Bob Marley is, for me, the greatest musician of all time because he defies every law possible that you have instated through music institutions. Bob Marley don't have nothing to do with any of that. Like Bob Marley don't got no Grammy. He don't got no MTV award. He wasn't most accoladed for this, for that. All he did was do music with that subliminal thing that he knew that long after he gone, he still would be here. Yo, thank you for the time, for the heart, for the soul, for the knowledge. Thank Anything you, fam. Anything else you want to say? You already know. And then we're going to talk in a couple of years because I'm about to break the next. So my next mission now, I'm going to the film industry. And okay. of course, I'm inspired by Jan Zimmer and Quincy Jones and Gershwin. So I am attacking Hollywood with a vengeance. I want to be the next king of scores. The king of scores. Let's see what happens in five years. From, from the score to the king of scores. Yeah, that's a bar. That's a bar. All right. <laughs> thanks so much to White Clef for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt. Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, and Kathy F. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed 
by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. (laughs) 